0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, Christopher Conover gives us an update on the state budget and other legislative actions. Adiba Nelson shares thoughts on motherhood, change, and her language of love with her daughter. I'll talk with members of one of Tucson's newest arts groups, Something Something Theater, and Andrew Brown talks with departing Museum of Contemporary Art curator Jocko Wayland. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. About this time every year, Arizona lawmakers are busy trying to negotiate a state budget for the next fiscal year. Some in the legislature are hoping to wrap things up by the end of April. Next, Christopher Conover joins us with an update on their progress. Christopher, thanks for joining us. Is there anything standing in the way of an early recess?
1: The one thing standing in the way of an early recess is actually funding for the universities Most of the big issues uh, from all the folks I've talked to in the state senate and the state house and even the governor's office are really worked out. Now, there might be some dollar differences, but the overall concepts are worked out. But it's state university funding. State universities, like the University of Arizona, are way behind on maintenance. They now have a name for it, deferred maintenance, and it's millions and millions of dollars. To solve that problem, the governor has suggested that the universities be able to keep sales tax generated on campus for themselves to help cover the cost of new bonds, which are basically loans. Now the cities, like the city of Tucson, very much like the city of Tucson, are very much opposed to this idea. The way a sales tax breaks down is the state levies sales tax, cities can levy sales tax, counties can levy sales tax. The state part of the sales tax is 5%, 5 cents on every dollar. Of that money, of that 5%, it's broken down that the cities get 10% of that. The counties get about 16, and the state gets the rest. So it's tens of millions of dollars that the cities will lose if this is approved. The governor thinks it's a good idea. The Arizona Board of Regents and the universities think it's a good idea. Most members of the legislature think it's a bad idea, and that's where the hang-up is right now on the budget. Everything is kind of hinging on that concept.
0: Shifting the topic from education to another subject, which has a lot of eyes following it right now, Governor Ducey signed a bill on what doctors have to do if a baby is born alive during an attempted abortion. Have you got a feeling of what the medical community's reaction to this bill is?
1: This pertains to abortions performed after 20 weeks. So let's put it in context a little bit in 2013, according to the centers for disease control, the federal government, 66% of all all abortions were performed before the eighth week, 92% were performed before the 13th week. So we're talking about a very small number post 20 weeks. There are those in the medical community who say this is a big burden. This is considered now the most strict abortion law in the country. It goes into effect this summer one exception was put in if there is a diagnosis that that baby will not survive beyond three months but the diagnosis has to have been done before the abortion was performed then the doctors do not have to try and resuscitate however it has to be done in advance the the baby the fetus can't be there and then they realize that there's some sort of illness disease or whatever At that point, they would have to go ahead and try and resuscitate, even if they know based on their experience and knowledge that that baby won't survive. If it wasn't pre-diagnosed, they have to do whatever they can. They've also defined live birth or delivered alive very strictly for the first time. And it means there's a heartbeat, shows breathing, uh, umbilical cord pulsation, or definitive movement of voluntary muscles.
0: Well, you said earlier that this could be a long night for the Senate, and that means there'll be a lot more developments. Uh, Our listeners can follow everything that uh, AZPM is reporting on at news.azpm.org. Thank you for your time. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. I first became aware of Adiba's writing when I read this essay that was picked up by the Huffington Post in May of 2015. It's about Adiba raising her daughter Emery, and some of the special challenges they face together.
2: My daughter's speech therapy is breaking my heart. I'm Adiba Nelson. When she pats me on the lap and rubs her eyes, she's telling me she's sleepy and ready to cuddle. When she opens her mouth wide and puts her finger in it, she's saying, I'm a hungry woman, feed me now. If she puts her right fist to her left shoulder and points at me, I know that she's saying I love you. This is our language, our secret language, our language of love formed from my daughter's need to communicate with me and my need to understand her. It has been the language we speak for the past five years, with American Sign Language, Spanish, and English mixed in. But mostly, it's been our language of love. When she was diagnosed with bilateral schizencephaly at 10 months of age, I was told it would affect her production of speech and ability to communicate. Not on my watch. I was told she would have some level of mental retardation. Not on my watch. I was told this dread and that dread and all I could say was not on my watch. I drove all over town five days a week so that I could one day give those doctors the finger. I refused to let them pre-diagnose her future. She was my child to guide, not their child to predetermine. And thus, we formed our love language. As these last five years have gone by, I have watched her excel and shatter every limitation they once tried to place on her. We've been through just about every therapy under the sun, and if I told you that being dead broke and choosing between diapers and paying a utility bill just so I could have enough gas money to get her to therapy wasn't worth it, my tongue would fall out from lying. Five years since diagnosis and she was currently learning to walk independently. She is feeding herself and imitating sounds and word approximations. What they said she would struggle with, this kid is knocking out of the park. And I couldn't be more proud. At therapy, we continue our love language with fist bumps after every successful pincher grasp, elbow bumps after an extended period of unsupported sitting, and strutting like peacocks after a stroll around the clinic. She is a superstar in therapy, rarely complaining, and always ending with a pat on my lap and a rub of the eyes. Mommy, I'm sleepy and I'm ready to cuddle. And of course, I oblige. She's speaking my language. But I have to tell you, there is a part of me that is unapologetically sad. She's having all of these wonderful, glittering successes, and yet I find myself at the crossroad between overjoyed and wistful. You see, while she's been making all of these strides, we've managed to hold on to our secret language. Gestures and looks, pointing and lap pats, When no one else knows what she is trying to say, I know. When no one else knows what she is asking for, I know. When no one else can figure out why she's crying, I can. Most of the time it takes about two seconds and she knows that if no one else knows her, I, her mother, know her. But now there's a communication device It's got pictures that correspond to words, and when she presses one, this computerized robot voice tells me what she wants. And if I'm being honest, as much as I love it, it's starting to form the rugged zigzag crack at the top of my heart. Now, instead of looking at me and then glancing at the bowl of oranges to tell me she'd like some fruit, there is a button that says fruit. Instead of patting my lap and rubbing her eyes to tell me that she's sleepy and she's ready for cuddles and then bedtime, there is a button that says, sleep. This device is granting her so much independence and the ability to speak her mind. It is opening the gateway to conversation for us. It is giving her the skills to one day be able to say, mom, you're being a real witch right now and I wish you'd just go away and as much as I dread that day, I also can't wait for it. I love the fact that my daughter will one day be able to tell a boy that he's cute, or a girl that she's cute, or a boss that he's being a creep, or a teacher that he or she is disproportionately focusing on the role men have played in the civil rights movement. I can't wait to get the note home that says, your daughter is talking too much in class. Actually, (laughs) yes, I can. But I'm going to assume you know what I mean. However, right now, while she's five years old and learning the motor planning to tell me she's sleepy or hungry or wants to watch television, I just want our secret language. I want to hold on to it for all its quirky, silly nuances that only she and I know about. It's selfish, I know. How dare I want us to keep this little gem of communication we've created! How dare I expect her to forego her own advancement to appease my aching mommy heart? How dare I want my baby to stay my baby forever? But alas, we didn't go to every therapy under the sun just to remain under the predetermination of doctors. So I'll watch her grow. I'll listen to her punch the buttons and tell me she's hungry or thirsty or sleepy or anything. And I'll applaud her as she gives her graduation speech 13 years from now on her communication device. But for now, while she's five, I'll hold on to any moment I get to share our secret language. Every sparkly-eyed glance, every wry smile, every lap pat and eye rub that says, Mommy, I'm sleepy and I'm ready to cuddle. Our language doesn't need a device, it's ours. Glance for glance. And no series of letters strewn together could ever aptly communicate our language of love.
0: Adiba's daughter Emery is now almost eight years old, and we're happy to report that they still communicate in their language of love every chance they get. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. One of the mottos of Something Something Theater is theater by women for everyone. The uniting theme of their current season is women who dare. But as we'll learn next from Something Something's artistic director, Joan O'Dwyer, and actor Paul Hammack, the production that debuts this weekend centers on the relationship between a male professor and a student who reminds him of himself. It's work from a new playwright named Anna Ziegler and Joan O'Dwyer says it fits in perfectly with the theater's mission.
3: We started in 2015, we had just one play at the beginning of the year, The Weir by Connor McPherson, because I love all things Irish. That went over pretty well and I thought, maybe we should just have a company. And so then um, we were searching around for a name for the company. And we had a playwriting group and it was called Something Something. And Catfish Baruni, a performer around town, had named the group. So we said to him, could we borrow your name for our theater company? And he said, sure. But it was kind of sad because after that, the playwriting group disbanded because a lot of people in it started working with our company. So they didn't have any time to go to the playwriting group anymore.
0: So about how large is the company that you're referring to?
3: This year, um, we have four directors and I'm directing two of the Working plays. Working on four different plays, I might add. Yeah, five plays. I direct plays. two of them. Okay. <laughs> I'm the artistic director, and I choose the plays. I also choose the director. That's my job as artistic director.
0: Tell me about the new production you've got coming up, Dove and Ali. What's, uh, what's the basis for this play?
3: Uh, this play is written by a young playwright woman, Anna Ziegler. She, um, she is Jewish, and um, the teacher in this play, Dove, teaches in a high school in Detroit, modern-day Detroit. He has a young student um, who is Islamic, and his name is Ali. They get into a discussion about the book they're studying, The Lord of the Flies by William Golding, about a dystopian society, boys on an island who turn savage and then try to be civilized and then turn savage again. From the very beginning, Dove, the teacher, I think, wonders why the student has come to him talking about the play. It evolves into religion, it evolves into family responsibilities and what your responsibility is in life. And um, there's something bothering the student, the teacher finally determines. And so the play goes on from there. Paul Hammack plays Dove, the teacher, and Tyler Gestellum, a very talented young man, um, plays Ali, the student. And then there is Paul's girlfriend, played by Callie Hutchison. And then there is Ollie's sister, played by Isabel Tinsley. And she's a senior at Catalina Foothills High School.
0: Paul, let's talk about the character you play. Who is Dove, and what are the main characteristics that you're trying to bring to the audience?
4: Well, Dove is a, um, a middle-aged Jewish man. He's teaching literature in, at the high school level. Uh, his father is a rabbi. He's sort of at a crossroads, he's in a quandary. He, um, he's not pursuing the life his father had laid out, and um, he's not really thrilled with the life that he's living. He's, he's sort of stuck in the middle.
0: Since you've taken on this part, what do you find yourself meditating most on? His religious side, his educational um, side, the fact that he may be a little unhappy with where he is in life at that point? Um, what is it that you have been thinking most about in order to evoke it on stage? I think the, uh, the core of
4: it is his humanism. He's just like everyone else. He, um, he's an awful lot like Ali. They are, we, we were discussing the other night about they, they may be considered two sides to the same coin, uh, two people from different backgrounds uh, struggling with the
0: exact same
4: problems and being able to help each other.
0: Is it a case where you think Dove looks at Ali and thinks, this is what I was like 20 years ago? Or is it more that he looks at Ali and thinks, I wish I could be like that again?
4: I think more the former than the latter. He sees himself 20 years ago uh, in college and um, with the vibrance that, uh, that a young man has and an older man, not so much. And I think that they, they begin their discussions going head-to-head because they're so much alike. And I find the most interesting discussions begin that
0: way. Is this your first production with Something Something Theater? Actually, it's my third, I think. What keeps you coming back? Uh, Joan,
4: for the most part. She's a wonderful director. It's a, it's a nice company to work for.
0: They're very comfortable, they're very supportive, and they choose really good material. What about the struggle to have resources to pull off these productions, Joan? Tell me a little bit about how Something Something Theater manages to pool its resources.
3: Well, it's a big struggle for any community theater company. And especially in Tucson, we have so many good theater companies. We're all doing kind of different things, though. Um, We get a lot of snowbirds, and we get a lot of people who live in the same community, and they all pull together and decide to come see us. And then, then they go to discuss something afterwards. Um, So we're starting to get more groups, and that helps our finances quite a bit. We have some of our members who are helping us along, donating some money as we go along. We work with the Act One people at the library. You get this pass for two tickets, free tickets to any of the plays. And we give away at least 25 of those, so that would be 50 tickets for each one of our plays. And we are losing money on that. But we also, I think, are gaining people who... A lot of them have never come to the theater before, and they say, this is really interesting. And they also go out afterwards and talk about it. And we're a little different, and we're hoping that more and more people see that.
0: Joan, where and when can people see Dove and Ali?
3: Friday the 4th is our opening night, and we're performing Fridays and Saturdays for the next three weeks at 7.30, Sundays at 2. And it's at the Community Playhouse, which is a relatively new theater, 1881 North Oracle, about five blocks south of Grand. You can get tickets by going on our website, somethingsomethingtheater.com.
0: My guests were Joan O'Dwyer and Paul Hammack from Something Something Theater. The free ticket program that Joan mentioned is called Act One, available at all Pima County public libraries. Local performing arts groups donate passes, which the library makes available to users on request. On the principle that this allows people to check out the Tucson art scene. In March, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tucson announced Ginger Schulich-Porcella will be taking over as executive director. She will also take on the role of chief curator, and that means current curator Jocko Weyland is moving on. Producer Andrew Brown visited the museum to talk to Weyland about his time in Tucson.
5: The Museum of Contemporary Art is located in the old Tucson Fire Department Station No. 1 building downtown. It's a brutalist structure with large garage doors
6: that howl when the wind blows. Wow, it sounds like you're in a wind tunnel. My name is Jaco Weyland. I am the chief curator of MoCA Tucson until the end of June. The
5: new executive director will be Mocha Tucson's third in the last four years. In that time, curator Jaco Weyland has been a constant presence at the museum, not only in his artistic vision, but physically also.
6: I've lived in the building for four years, which was possibly considered a sort of performance art piece. The current
5: show in the main hall, curated by Jocko, has a long but apt title.
6: (laughs) It's, if you stay busy, you have no time to be unhappy.
5: I had an idea that he might be
6: leaving when I went to the opening in February. I, I sensed that this might be the last show or close to the last show, and that kind of pushed me into doing something... That was a summation. People have passed through, people that are from here, people that are here, some that are well-known, some that are totally make art in, in isolation. I want to get them all in the room and it said hopefully turn into something that gave everybody their due, but as a whole was a kind of my biannual. I wanted to know what shows Jocko was
5: most proud of in his time here.
6: I'd done about 20 shows in that time, so I'm not gonna be able to talk about all of them. The mobile pools were really a lot of fun and great. Having Terry Trash perform here, Texas Trash in the train wrecks. The third day I moved, after I moved to Tucson, I saw Terry Trash at the district and it made a big impression. It, this is like a once in a lifetime experience was, was Anne Marie and I finding Robert Barber, who was hiding in plain sight. You know, he lived in Tucson. He put his art in art shows in Tucson and never really got any recognition. And when we met him, he was 92 and he'd been painting for 50 years. And the amount of work he had made and and the dedication, the determination, and just was a, a really great artist.
5: Jocko moved here from New York where he was working as an artist and a writer. He's contributed to the San Francisco Arts Quarterly, Ad Busters, The New York Times, Thrasher Magazine, and written multiple books. He has a global perspective on the art world. At times, this conflicted with the Tucson art scene.
6: (laughs) I would call it the defense of provincialism. You'd think Tucson being the 33rd largest city in America with a million people. I've found, (laughs) at times, a lack of curiosity about what happens outside like picasso already existed if you're gonna like do a creative pursuit you gotta at least be aware of it and kind of see that as a challenge or something to deal with the situation we're talking about is often instead of doing that is this sort of shying away and like pushing that aside and being like well this is good for me and my little group of friends and that just doesn't cut it from
5: jocko's view at the museum he witnessed the redevelopment of downtown tucson and he encourages
6: the city to be more mindful about the way we proceed. Tucson has character and is really different, which is like great. It's inevitable that this like downtown so-called revitalization, it's happening everywhere, gentrification, whatever you wanna call it. I just think it's worth thinking about like, it's not just plopping it down in this modular way and and letting a few private developers really run things. The downtown motel is a great example. You had this wonderful 1950s Googie Architecture motel, you know, in disrepair, but you can't replace it when you get rid of it. What is now in its place is something you could have anywhere in the world, a chance was lost there to make something good and special as opposed to just like, oh, could have been anywhere.
5: What artists do you really recommend that people who are here check out? And people who are doing stuff with you know, broader context, like you were mentioning before.
6: To use three examples, artists and one architect who are both really quite renowned in their fields, and the three people I'm talking about are Olivier Messier, Peter Young, who lives in Bisbee, but let's say, uh, and Rick Joy, are all pretty much unknown in Tucson, Arizona. I mean, that's. I think they like that. Uh, Willman Reyes, who's in this show. There's. I mean, everybody I'm going to say is in this show. Jeff Lounsbury, Yuri, Maya Hawk. Eric Kroll, Jessica James Lanson, the people who are sort of the validated and, and everybody agrees on are not necessarily the people doing interesting work because I think that often leads to sort of resting on your laurels. And what's interesting is people who don't have laurels and are really trying to come up with something, their own personal vision, and that's in the end what makes art interesting and exciting and makes it not like other things in life, you know. I mean, I'll be back in Tucson, I'm sure, and there's, I've made some really good friends here and compatriots, uh, and there are artists here that I really admire and like what they do, and, you know, I'm interested to see what happens at MOCA. So yeah, I'm not, but I won't be living here. After Jocko Wayland
0: leaves Tucson, what do you think that the Tucson art scene is going to be missing?
5: Um, I think that they'll miss a really challenging and critical voice in the art scene. You know, he was challenging. Not everybody agreed with him, but I appreciated that about him.
0: Well, Andrew Brown, thank you. Thanks, Mark. Jocko Whalen's final MOCA show, If You Stay Busy, You Have No Time to Be Unhappy, is open until the end of May at the Museum of Contemporary Art in downtown Tucson. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.